Hey, man, let's do it. I'm excited about my topic. You're excited about your topic every week. No, but I'm more excited this week. You sent me a topic, and I told you it sucks. Yeah, you vetoed my topic. I you feel said, hey, bad man, about it. Think bigger. Think bigger. Well, what was your original topic? My original topic was uh, plastic bag, plastic shopping bag. You know, it's just like I was more interested in the person who invented the shopping bag. Here's the thing. I think there's not an article about the guy who invented the bag because he probably yes. was just a scientist that worked for a, or a researcher and developer who worked for a company. And just went into a lab every day and tinkered with oils and plastics. That was both of my grandfathers. <laughs> and they don't have wiki articles. So they don't have... Uh, I See, I grew up in my household. We grew up as a kid as a plastic bag household where you, every time you go shopping, you just save the plastic bags. Yeah, I, I would always save my plastic bags uh, so I could throw them all into the ocean at once. That's what I was heading at. I have such a collection. Even now as a grown-up, I'm just accustomed to just every time I go shopping, I take out the bags. And usually I double bag each item. Each item. By the way, each item I double bag. Each item, yeah. yeah. I yeah, bag each item when I go to the grocery store. I'm going later today, which I'm kind of excited. I buy sugar packets. Like, I buy sugar packets, <laughs> and I take them out while I'm checking out, and I put each sugar packet into a plastic bag. A good man, exactly. Because you never know when you're going to need all those plastic bags. And right. long story short, I have, like, a bag full, like a Santa Claus sack full of these plastic bags. So that got me thinking. That got me thinking about plastic bags and like who invented the plastic bag, like that size. Because that size plastic bag has almost become the standard. You know, the standard thank you, thank you, thank you plastic size bag. See, I think the thank you, thank you, thank you is a little small. I don't think it's smaller. I think thin. it's lighter, thinner, thinner in the plastic. But I don't think it's, it's like the, the perfect weight for blowing away and into our waterways. Yes, it's the wind's best friend. Hey everyone and welcome to Wiki University, a podcast that dives down the rabbit hole of Wikipedia to explore the sum of all human knowledge. I'm Kyle Berseth, your host and dean of this fine institution, and as always, I'm joined by our summa cum laude, Jason Nunez. If this is your first time at WikiYouth, thanks for tuning in. Jason and I are comedians, and this is a podcast that combines learning and comedy, so it's for smart people and dumb people alike. In every episode, Jason and I get together over Zoom and attempt to link two very different topics across Wikipedia. So strap on and strap in, because on today's episode, we're starting in Centralia, Pennsylvania. They say if you've seen one small Pennsylvania town, you've seen them all, but none quite like this. Centralia is the site of a nearly 80-year disaster. We're going to end the episode at another human disaster that's ongoing. Set sail with us as we take a closer look at the Great Pacific Garbage Patch.
All right, so what's your topic? Since I killed your plastic bag, I made you think bigger. Yeah, you threw that one away into the garbage. You didn't even <laughs> recycle that. Well, you kind of recycled it. You recycled the topic, and you said, hey, how about we do the Great Pacific Garbage Island? Which, you know, I don't know a ton about it. I feel like... um. This is where Fire Festival took place. <laughs> yeah, the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. Yeah, that'd be great. How also great known as Fire Fest. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the fact that it's called the Great Pacific Garbage Patch makes me wonder, are there smaller garbage patches around the Pacific? There must be, are they, right? Is it called the Patch, or is it officially an island? Has somebody settled there yet? I don't think anyone has settled. No one's planted what? their flag. Not even the British? Come on. Come on, Brits. <laughs> I know. <laughs> the British said uh, we wanted to, but there were no inhabitants to push out, so we okay. couldn't. We okay. didn't know what to do they're usually the first ones on top of that shit. They're usually the first exactly. ones Exactly. They're the first responders when it comes to colonialism. There usually needs to be a resource, though. And this is like the leftover of resources. I'm a little concerned about plastic, not just in the ocean, but White Bones sent me a post. White Bones sent you a post. Go on. Via White Bones News, it said that we, as humans, eat approximately a credit card worth of plastic every week. Whoa. Every Sunday is my cheat day, so I eat a credit card every Sunday. When do you pay it off? Oh, when it comes out on yeah, Monday. Yeah, right after, buddy. <laughs> that that night. <laughs> it slices right through oh, my esophagus. why'd I spend so much? <laughs> <laughs> but real quick, before we leave White Bones' statement, I mean, in what way do people take plastic inside of their body? One of the main ways that probably relates to what we're talking about today is fish. Because fish eat the plastic, and then it gets caught and processed, and then they're just in our body calamari the reason she sent me this article or i guess it was just an instagram post which is what i call articles (laughs) now it was a picture of a embryo or a fetus or whatever you call them and microplastics are Uh showing up in babies now that's insane so if it's a mild. Mo- so you're saying if a pregnant mother were to eat plastic, the baby's also eating plastic. It's inevitable that the pregnant mother will eat plastic. Right, through fish. So let me introduce my topic. I don't know if we have time for your topic, Kyle. My topic's way too interesting. I think you'll enjoy my topic today, Jason. All right. I feel like it's not that far off from your topic. In that it's destroying the world. So we both have destruction of the world here. Hey, that's one thing mankind's great at. Probably the best at. Let's just go into my topic, right? Dive right in. All right, so my topic is a little town, a little borough in Pennsylvania called Centralia, Pennsylvania. Hmm. Centralia is a borough and near ghost town in Columbia County, Pennsylvania, United States, its population has dwindled from more than 1,000 residents in 1980 to 63 by 1990 to only five people in 2017. Get out of here. A result of the coal mine fire, which has been burning beneath the borough since 1962. Holy shit. Wait, so... It's still on? Still going? It's still on fire. 1962, the fire started. 2020, still burning. Wait, what's still burning? It's underground, you said? Yeah, in the mines. Because there's all that coal down there, so it's just on fire. It's just still going? 
Still going. <laughs> what? How is... <laughs> it's so hard for me to wrap my head around this. That's so difficult. Has anybody tried to tame it? Let's read on. Please. All real estate in the borough was claimed under eminent domain in 1992 and condemned by the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Centralia's zip code was even discontinued by the Postal Service in 2002. So I don't know what those five people are doing for their mail. P.O. Box. They're in the P.O. Box game. Uh, State and local officials reached an agreement with the seven remaining residents on October 29th, 2013, allowing them to live out their lives there. So I guess two have since died, after which the rights to their houses will be taken through eminent domain. Of course, under Centralia, there's early history. Native Americans are there. Then the white man comes in and says, hey, we want to do some mining here. Blah, blah, blah. Let's get to the fire here. That's insane. You know what happened? Uh, That um, town was built under Indian burial ground and is now cursed forever. That's why there's a fire. It's crazy that you've never heard of this, but you did know that fact. I'm very impressed. (laughs) Well, I just, you know. (laughs) You know, I'm part Native American, Cal. I'm Incan. (laughs) Oh, boy. Here we go. (laughs) What? I'm Incan colon. You're part Incan, part colon. And your colon is filled with credit cards. (laughs) (laughs) Ouch. All right. The Wall Street crash of 1929 resulted in the Lehigh Valley Coal Company closing five of its Centralia local mines. Bootleg miners continued mining in several idle mines using techniques such as what they called pillar robbing, where miners would extract coal from coal pillars left in mines to support their roofs. Wow, that's that's risky. That's dicey, yeah. Uh, this caused the collapse of many mines, further complicating the prevention of the mine fire in 1962. There's a main article for the mine fire. All right, I'm going to go to the main article for the Centralia Mine Fire. Please. On May 7th, 1962, the Centralia Council met to discuss the approaching Memorial Day and how the town would go about cleaning up the Centralia landfill, which was introduced earlier that year. They made a landfill, and then they were like, we got to clean this up. This is a mess. The whole town is a landfill. It sounds, well, it sounds like it. The 300-foot-wide, 75-foot-long pit was made up of a 50-foot-deep strip mine that had been cleared by some dude in 1935 and came very close to the northeast corner of Oddfellows Cemetery. There were eight illegal dumps spread about Centralia. See, that even seems kind of organized right when i drive around la i see piles of garbage everywhere at least here there they were like yeah there's eight places where people dump their garbage like those eight places they could have been made turned into like garbage places official dumps yeah yeah the illegal dumps are now official dumps yeah (laughs) then it's like not as like people don't want to go there because it's not as fun so they find other places all right, well, let's get to the fire here. Uh, anyway, they got they got all these illegal dumps. The cemetery, Oddfellow Cemetery, was opposed to land, the landfill's proximity to the cemetery, which that is what a cemetery is. It's just a landfill for bodies. Body landfill, yeah. It's a, yeah, for sure. But the cemetery was 
cognizant of the illegal dumping elsewhere as a serious problem and envisioned that a new pit would resolve it. Pennsylvania had passed a precautionary law in 1956 to regulate landfill use in strip mines as landfills were known to cause destructive mine fires. Ah, the law required a permit and regular inspection for a municipality to use such a pit. George Sagitt some dude George, a regional landfill inspector who worked for the Department of Mines and Mineral Industries, DMMI, became concerned about the pit when he noticed holes in the walls and floor, as such mines often cut through older mines underneath. Ah, hidden mines. George informed some dude Joe, a Centralia council member, that the pit would require filling with an incombustible material. Oh boy, here's the fire. God damn, this is a long lead up to a fire. The fire was ignited. Oh, whoa. Don't tell me they tried to burn the garbage. Okay. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> the council minutes do not describe the proposed pr- uh, procedure. Someone, somebody that is an expert here, surmises that the process, setting it on fire, was not specified because state law prohibited dump fires. Nonetheless, the Centralia Council set a date and hired five members of the Volunteer Firefighter Company to clean up the landfill via fire, I guess. Hold on, you can't put the, you can't put the, real quick, you can't put this on the firefighters because... You can't hire firefighters to get rid of your trash because you know what they're gonna do with it. Set it on fire. That's <laughs> they like love if you fire. if you asked cops to get rid of your trash, all they would have done is like shot at the garbage. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Problem solved. Yeah, but you asked firefighters, what do you think they're gonna do with it? Here's the other thing. I bet there was a conversation. Right next to the dump, just when they like poured gasoline on everything and were holding yeah. matches, there was probably a councilman that was like, "Hey, are you sure this is a good idea?" And they go, "Hey, we're the fire department. We're, if it's if something goes wrong, we're here. This is not gonna burn for eighty years, my friend. It might burn the rest of the day, tops. This is a lot of garbage, but." <laughs> Not 80 years. Oh, man. I would love to see that firefighter 10 years later. Yeah. Feeling so like, oh, boy. Did not expect that. <laughs> hey, I was just a volunteer firefighter. I'm actually yeah, a plumber. Yeah. That's, yeah. Hey, I was just volunteering that day, man. That wasn't even, they just signed, it was, it was sign up like randomly. I didn't even sign up for it. So. <laughs> I have a cousin who is a volunteer firefighter in Pennsylvania, small town Pennsylvania. He was a computer engineer. Yeah. He only lit five <laughs> mines on fire. <laughs> and they only lasted for a couple of years. <laughs> Not 30 plus. <laughs> All right. <laughs> a fire was ignited to clean the dump on May 27th. Yo, hold up, hold up, hold up. <laughs> Just imagine being this firefighter, this volunteer firefighter, and then you do the opposite of what you volunteered to do in the first place. 
<laughs> you know what? I want to help out, put out some fires of any sort of emergency. I want to be, you know, a, a good person and give back to my community. A lot of people don't know. We light fires, too. <laughs> It's just like you're saying. I, I I doubt like he woke up that morning thinking like, oh, I'm gonna set a fire that will never be. It's like an eternal fire. It's like this fire will last longer than the fucking fire for the tomb of the unknown soldier. <laughs> oh fuck, dude. That's too. That's too funny. Well, not only that, I love the <laughs> sentence, the fire was ignited to clean the dump. Like, <laughs> they could have gotten bulldozers or shovels, <laughs> like rigs. A classic way to clean yeah. a dump is to just light it all on fire. Yeah, that's, oh, oh man, God. talk about trying to take the easy way out, that small little town. The fire was ignited to clean the dump on May 27th, 1962, and water was used to douse the visible flames that night. However, flames were seen once more on May 29th, two days later. Using hoses hooked up from Locust Avenue, another attempt was made to douse the fire that night. Another flare-up in the following week, June 4th, caused the Centralia Fire Company, who are a bunch of volunteers, to once again (laughs) douse it with hoses. A bulldozer, finally they got a bulldozer involved, stirred up the garbage so that firemen could douse concealed layers of the burning waste. A few days later, a hole as wide as 15 feet and several feet high was found in the base of the north wall of the pit. Garbage had concealed the hole and prevented it from being filled with incombustible material. It is possible that the hole led to the mine fire as it provided a pathway to the labyrinth of old mines under the borough. Evidence indicates that despite these efforts to douse the fire, the landfill continued to burn. On July 2nd, some dude, Bill, complained about the foul odors from the smoldering (laughs) trash and coal reaching the church. Even then, the Centralia Council still allowed the dumping of garbage into the pit, so they can't, it's still burning, and they're like, well, we got to put the garbage somewhere. somewhere. We can't use these illegal dumps that are all over town. It's got to go into the main dump. That's insane. I was going to skip this part of the story, but I love this guy's name. A member of the council contacted Clarence Mooch Kashner, the president of the <laughs> Independent Miners. The Mooch! Yeah, this guy is the president of a lot. The Independent Miners, Breakerman, and Truckers Union came okay. to inspect the situation in Centralia. Yeah, you want a guy named Mooch inspecting it. <laughs> Some engineer, Smith, told the town that he could dig out the smoldering material using a steam shovel for $175. That's it. Uh, a call was placed to another dude, a mine inspector, who brought gas station detection equipment for use on the swirling wisps of smoke now emanating from ground fissures in the north wall. Blah, blah, blah. Tests were done. Here's the escalation of this thing. Oh, my God. This is a long-ass article. I had no idea. The Centralia Council sent a letter to the Lehigh Valley Coal Company as formal notice of the fire. It is speculated that the town council decided that hiding the true origin of the fire would serve better than alerting the coal company of the truth, which would most likely end in receiving no help from them 
Uh, in the letter, the borough described the starting of the fire as unknown origin uh, <laughs> during a period of unusually hot weather. Okay, so early remediation attempts. Uh, first excavation project pressed on an August 12th meeting. So now it's been burning for months. Of the United Mine Workers of America in Centralia, some dude sent a letter. A lot of letters. This is why it takes so much time back then. Bids for the project would be opened on August 17th, so this excavation project. Oh, Jesus, bids. They got to open up bids and shit. It's going to take forever. Maybe that's why the fire hasn't been put out yet. Like it could, it could be put out, but they're still working out. They're the still deets. evaluating yeah. bids. <laughs> Big surprise! The first project ran out of money and ended on October 29th, nineteen sixty-two. So I think they were trying to dig this thing out. Then there was a second excavation project. And they want to dig out the fire. Yeah, well, I think they're trying to get down to the mine because the fire was spreading down to the mine. Gotcha. Uh, let's see. Drilling was conducted through hole space twenty feet. Apart in a semicircular pattern along the edge of the landfill. However, this project was also ineffective due to multiple factors. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Heavy snowfall. We're in the winter now. Damn. Then there was a third project. A three-option proposal was drawn up soon after that. Although the project would be delayed until after the new fiscal year. So now they're like, hey, we got we to wait till the budget comes in. To put this fire out. Can you imagine your house being on fire and the fire department shows up? They also light it more on fire. And then they're also like, hey, we don't have the budget. Yeah, we yeah, got to wait yeah. a few days till the next budget clears to see if we can provide this water. <laughs> All right. So now they're adding trenches or some shit. I don't even know. Then there's uh, later remediation projects. David DeCock began reporting on the mine fire for the news item in Shemokin. Shemokin. <laughs> beginning in late 1976. So they, they finally got a 24-hour news guy in 1976. After, so how many years was that from it first began? Started in 1962, so uh, 14 years. During those times, it was like under wraps. Like it was just the city's problem. Nobody like wanted to report on a landfill, Jason. That's true. He started writing, reporting on the mine in late 1976. Between 1976 and 1986, he wrote over 500 articles about the mine fire. Most of them said, still burning in 1979. <laughs> Two-word articles. In 1979, <laughs> locals became aware of the scale of the problem. When What? They didn't know the scale of the problem until 1979. This was a good small-town cover-up. They kept, yeah, wow. they kept it, like, they didn't want to be, you know, it's <clears throat> it's wrapped up in, like, embarrassment. Yeah. Because, like you were saying, first off, it was a volunteer firefighter. And then it sounded like the fire was like somewhat contained in one area until they brought in the bulldozer. Well, here's a uh, do -do 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 -do. here's a Kyle <laughs> Berseth breaking news theory. Ooh, I'm whoa. guessing when they were drilling holes adjacent to the landfill, yeah. I bet they were pouring water in there or pouring something down there to smother the fire. I would guess, but I okay. bet it also added air down into the mines, which Ooh. fed the fire. No, that's true. I mean, you you make a good point. You know, you gotta you're gonna feed the fire before you kill it. I mean, you shouldn't. 
All right, between 1976 and 1986, he wrote 500 articles. But in 1979, locals became aware of the scale of the problem when a gas station owner, then mayor... (laughs) I love gas station mayor. (laughs) Gas station mayor. That's his name. That's what everybody in town called him. (laughs) Gas station mayor. Quick, gas station mayor. We have a problem here. He's one step above Mayor McCheese. That's what it feels like. (laughs) Yeah. So gas station mayor inserted a dipstick into one of his underground tanks, which sounds like a gas station duty, not a mayoral duty, yeah. to check the fuel level. <laughs> yeah. I wear a lot of hats. Yeah. Uh, Small town, a lot of hats. When he, when he pulled the dipstick out, it seemed hot. He lowered the thermometer into the tank on a string and was shocked to discover that the temperature of the gasoline was 172 degrees. What? Holy shit. So people were just filling their cars with boiling gas. Oh my God. Holy shit. That's insane. Finally, beginning in 1980, adverse health effects were reported by several people due to the byproducts of the fire, carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide, and low oxygen levels. Statewide attention to the fire began to increase, culminating in 1981, when a 12-year-old resident named Tom Domboski fell into a sinkhole four feet wide by 150 feet deep that suddenly opened beneath his feet in a backyard. He clung to a tree root until his cousin, 14-year-old Eric Wolfgang, saved his life by pulling him out of the hole. The plume of hot steam billowing from the hole was measured as containing a lethal level of carbon monoxide. I don't know. I feel like a lot of that could have just been built up in this kid's imagination. (laughs) He's like a a young Walter Mitty. Yeah. Yeah. A few idiot families opted to stay despite urgings from Pennsylvania officials. In 1992, the governor invoked eminent domain on all properties, as we discussed, uh, there were seven remaining residents in 2013. I don't understand how fracking was such like, we want fracking. Are you sure you want fracking? Because... As long as there's no volunteer firefighters fracking. Yeah. <laughs> so is there any <clears throat> is there any articles on dumpster or like uh, trash, garbage, dumpster? Maybe we can... You want to go to landfill? Yeah, yeah, sure. Are there any sinkholes? Uh, Let me find where land in LA went. that you've gone to. Like, what's the closest sinkhole? <laughs> I don't know. The sinkholes usually aren't landmarks that I know of. <laughs> but there. Oh, I was gonna say you should check out this video. There was a guy waiting for a bus in New York City, and the sidewalk collapsed on collapsed underneath of him, and he fell into a goddamn rat den, and they had oh. to. It took like 30 minutes to pull him out. Because it was like in New York. It was right underneath. Yeah. What, did the ground just give up? It wasn't a sinkhole. The ground just gave up. Yeah, I don't know what you consider a sinkhole, but the sidewalk was unsupported because the basement of a business had like dug it out or something and then sealed it off. So it was just a sidewalk hanging out up there. And that collapsed. He fell in and he had read articles about rats being aggressive so he just didn't move and waited for the fire company to come right and the fire company lit him on fire (laughs) they were like the best way to deal with this 
is to douse the rats and you in gasoline, and yeah. whoever survives, that's who we'll save. And uh, it was a volunteer firefighter. It was a volunteer firefighter. <laughs> yeah, he's still on day. fire. All right, I went to landfill. Okay. This is a big article, dude. Hey, man, big article. You know what that means. No. Big chances of us getting to our next topic. All right. A landfill site, also known as a tip, dump, rubbish dump, garbage dump, or dumping ground, is a site for the disposal of waste materials. Landfill is the oldest and most common form of waste disposal, although the systematic burial of the waste with daily intermediate and final covers only began in the 1940s. I do think it's impressive when I see a capped landfill you know, it's growing grass or whatever, or, or um, plants, and I'm like, that's just a small mountain now. Oh, wait, they, ca- they cap landfills? Like, it's just, we're done taking trash, and it just sits there? Yeah, I, I think it just sits there. They also have, like, pipes in there to let the gases release in a safe manner, but, you know, who knows how safe this stuff is. And so what do they do with it? I guess I never really thought about that, which is just something that, you know, you never really think about, Kyle, but sometimes it's good to think about. Did you think about that? I thought about it. Uh, you could Google a place in New York City. It's called Fresh Kills Landfill. Okay. And they turned it into a park. Oh, okay. That's cool. But it's not like it doesn't have, like you're saying, the, the gases releasing releasing toxins and shit. I think that's part of the capping of it. I don't know. I, you know, there's a ton of different types of landfill. I'm looking at the, the contents of this article here. Yeah. I see sanitary landfill life cycle. So there's, there's uh, five phases. And I'll go to the final phase, final maturation and stabilization. The rate of microbial activity slows during the last phase of waste decom. Breathe, breathe, Kyle. Breathe in through your asshole and out through your mouth. Uh, well, I would breathe in through my asshole if there wasn't a credit card stuck in there. <laughs> hey, that's my credit card. Give it back. I got to send a fire rat up there to, to fish it out. <laughs> The rate of microbial activity slows down during the last phase of waste decomposition as the supply of nutrients limits the chemical reactions. CH4 production almost completely disappears with O2 and oxidized species gradually reappearing in the gas wells as O2 permeates downwardly from the troposphere. This transforms the oxidation reduction. I don't know what any of this means. Yeah, neither do I. That's above my pay grade. I'm only a student here at WikiU. All right, so that told me nothing. Where do you want to go here? We could go to... I know it's a large article, but are there any... You mentioned, like, um, environmental effects. Oh, yeah. All right. Social and environmental impact. Landfills have the potential to cause a number of issues. Infrastructure disruption, such as damage to access roads by heavy vehicles, may occur. That's not too bad. Pollution of local roads and water courses from wheels on vehicles when they leave the landfill can be significant and be mitigated by wheel washing systems. Pollution of the local environment, such as contamination of groundwater or aquifers or soil contamination, may occur. Poorly run landfills may become nuisances because of vectors such as rats and flies, which can spread infectious disease. The occurrence of such vectors can be mitigated through the use of daily cover. That's rough. How do you cover a whole landfill? 
Oh my god. <laughs> There's just a picture on Wikipedia here of a herd of elephants in a trash dump in Sri Lanka. Elephants are the seagulls of Sri Lanka? Yeah, dude. That's majestic as fuck. <laughs> oh my god. I want to visit a Sri Lankan landfill. <laughs> uh, you can't. It's capped. It's capped and they're setting it on fire this weekend. <laughs> in Sri Lanka, do the uh, do the firefighters come in elephants? As long as we're doing stereotypes, yeah. <laughs> Other potential issues include wildlife disruption due to occupation of habitat and animal health disruption caused by consuming waste from landfills, dust, odor, noise pollution, and reduced local property values. All right, do you want to go to aquifer or groundwater? Aquifer, aquifer. Do you know what an aquifer is, Jason? No idea. That's why I wanted Whoa, to- Whoa, you're about to learn the shit out of aquifers. Hell yeah. Hell yeah, teacher Kyle. Teach me something. An aquifer is an underground layer of water-bearing permeable rock. Rock fractures or- Sign it, sign it out, teacher Kyle. Unconsolidated materials, which are like gravel, sand, or silt. Groundwater can be extracted using a water well. The study of water flow in aquifers and the characterization of aquifers is called hydrology. Related terms include aquitard. <laughs> that is me 100%. <laughs> Which is someone who knows nothing about aquifers. Yep, I'm an aquitard. Related terms include aquitard, which is a bed of low permeability along an aquifer, and aquaclude, which is a solid impermeable area underlying or overlying an aquifer, the pressure of which could create a confined aquifer. So do you have any idea what an aquifer is at this point? Uh, it seems to be like something between... It's like under in the water, like rock sand, like in between rock sand. <laughs> Turn on the red light. Bam, bam, rock sand. Turn on the red light. The police wrote that after they went to the beach. Yeah. yeah. They're just like, wow, look at all this rock sand. Hey, there's a prostitute walking across the rock sand. Rock sand. Turn on the red light. Rock sand. Turn on the red light. Rock sand. So now that we know where the police came up with their song, their famous hit, Rock Sand. Oh, my God. I think that Aqua, Aqua, uh, Aqua Fresh is... So there's a there's a picture okay. on the on WikiU. There's a diagram here, but it's basically the aquifer is the water that's under the soil, the initial layer of soil, and I think that's why we could take it out through water wells, and wells have to be you know a certain depth before you hit the aquifer and can draw water out. So you can siphon the water out of the earth. Aquifers occur from near surface to deeper than 9,000 meters, which is 30,000 feet. I don't need a 30,000 foot well. Seems yeah. excessive. Those closer to the surface are not only more likely to be used for water supply and irrigation, but are also more likely to be replenished by local rainfall. Many desert areas have limestone hills or mountains within them or close to them that can be exploited as groundwater resources. That's interesting. 
Part of the Atlas Mountains in North Africa, the Lebanon and anti-Lebanon ranges between Syria and Lebanon, the Jebel... Somewhere in Oman. Oman? Oman? Oman. Oh, man. Oh, man. Parts of the Sierra Nevada and neighboring ranges in the United States Southwest have a shallow aquifer, have shallow aquifers that are exploited for their water. Over-exploitation, which I'm sure humans have done, can lead to the exceeding of the practical sustained yield, i.e. more water is taken out than can be replenished. Along the coastlines of certain countries such as Libya and Israel, increased water usage associated with population growth has caused a lowering of the water table and the subsequent contamination of the groundwater with salt water from the sea. Ah, a beach provides a model, rock sand, rock sand, to help visualize an aquifer. Now Wiki, Wikipedia itself is like, hey, if you don't get it now, here, we're going to try to explain it to you. I like that, Wiki. A beach provides a model to help visualize an aquifer. If a hole is dug into the sand, very wet or saturated sand will be located at a shallow depth. The hole is a crude well. The wet Sand represents an aquifer, and the level to which the water rises in the hole represents the water table. Got it? (laughs) Rock sand! (laughs) In in 2013, large freshwater aquifers were discovered under continental shelves of Australia, China, North America, and South Africa. They contain an, an estimated half a million cubic kilometers of low salinity water that could be economically processed into potable water. The reserves formed when ocean levels were lower and rainwater made its way into the ground in land areas that were not submerged until the Ice Age ended 20,000 years ago. Wow, these nerds really figured it out. The volume is estimated to be 100 times the amount of water extracted from from other aquifers since 1900. Good find. Good find, Aquatard. This is another, another long-ass article, but we could go to saltwater. You mentioned beach and stuff like that. Right near the beach, boy. (laughs) All right, do you want to go to beach or saltwater? I guess are they kind of the same? I'd rather go to beach because I feel like you can find like beach pollution or something underneath that article. Let's see. All right, we are on the broad article. Of beach. Oh, here you go. A beach is a landform alongside a body of water, which contain consists of loose particles. Yeah. The particles composing yeah. The particles composing a beach uh, yeah. are typically, typically Yeah, tell me what from, composes a beach. Yeah, tell me. Tell me what are the components of a beach, Kyle. Yeah. Rock. Yeah. Oh yeah. Sand. I'm rock right now. <laughs> rock, rock sand. <laughs> Gravel shingle. Pebbles or biological sources such as mollusk shells or coralline algae. Sediments settle in different densities and structures depending on the local wave action and weather, creating different textures, colors, and gradients or layers of material. What kind of wave action do you guys have uh, today, Kyle, at the beach, at the local beach? Let me take a look. Yeah, look out your window real quick. All right. Uh, Kyle's got beachside property, by the way, guys. That's right. I'm I'm actually in the water right now. I'm yeah. podcasting from the water. Yeah. 
All right. Though some beaches form on freshwater locations, most beaches are in coastal areas where wave or current action deposits and reworks sediments. Erosion and changing of beach geologies happens through natural processes like wave action and extreme weather events. Wave action. Uh, Sandy beaches occupy one-third of the global coastlines. These beaches are popular for recreation, of course, playing important economic and cultural roles, often driving local tourism industries. Blah, blah, blah. Oh, wait. Here you go. Here you go. Here you go. I think we can get to the great garbage heap, great Pacific garbage heap here, maybe. Or we're, we're, we're edging it, bro. Hey, you know me. I love a good edge. Human forces have significantly changed beaches globally. Direct impacts include bad construction practices on dunes and coastlines, while indirect human impacts include water pollution, plastic pollution, and coastal erosion from sea level rise and climate change. Do you want to go to plastic pollution? Uh, I'll take yes for 500, Bob. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Plastic pollution, one of Jason's great passions. Yeah, I used to love throwing trash outside my car. Sometimes I've just... All right. I know you're joking, (laughs) but have you ever seen anyone do that? It is like it's it's jarring. It's so disrespectful, dude. Just, uh, yeah, oh it's so God. disrespectful. <laughs> you know what I was like picturing? I was about to tell you that I I used to back in my old days, I used to just stop at a grocery store, pick up some milk, uh drink the whole mi- milk, <laughs> plastic milk. And then just chug it out the window. <laughs> Unscrew the cap. Yeah, yeah. Throw the cap out. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, granted, I, I, I got to be honest. I'm sure I've, I did it like as a, ch- as a kid or definitely like as a teen when I first started driving or whatever. But I don't remember like a, doing it a lot or anything like that. But like when I see people like throw away even like a candy wrapper, I'm just like, what the fuck, dude? Just hang on to that. Just hang on to that. Yeah. Your gigantic big king size Kit Kat can you can wrap that little wrapper inside of your little cup holder and just take it to the next trash that you're at. You're going to go to the next place that you are heading to will for certainly have a trash receptacle. Cities all the time, I'll see people like unwrap something and then just drop it while walking and not even bat an eye. That's crazy to me. Another time I saw a guy in D.C., I was driving behind him and he just started dumping trash (laughs) out of his car like he hadn't cleaned his car out. He came to a stoplight and just started dumping trash out. And it was so alarming. Like, it was a lot of trash. I I do that like when I find a nice um gas station that i'm getting gas at right and it suddenly has this big gigantic trash can next to it It has a little squeegee thing like all right i'm gonna treat my car a little bit you know clean the windshield take out the trash but i would never think of just like while i'm driving just throw trash out the window and shit like yeah and it seemed like he'd been saving it up quite a bit but anyway plastic pollution plastic when i see starbucks plastic cups on the ground i get so mad but i get mad at like starbucks almost yeah all these companies should stop using plastic yeah i mean what are you gonna use though glass glass yeah well they do have like paper you mean bring your own like bring your own thing 
That's a pretty good idea, too. Christine suggested, wipe, sorry, goddamn, wipe bones suggested that grocery stores should have like big soda pumps where you just bring your refillable glass soda bottle or whatever and you fill it up there and that's what you do. Refill what? Water? No, soda. You know how Burger King has a soda filler, right? You fill your own cup of soda. Why don't they have that in grocery stores where you bring your bottle, your soda bottle, you refill it, and you just check out, and they charge you whatever the price is for soda? (laughs) I got a huge, huge problem with this scenario. You think it's not sanitary for some reason? I don't think it's a sanitary thing is that I have an issue. First off, bottled, and I don't even drink soda anymore, but bottled soda and fountain soda. Or, it's know, just an um, example of something that comes in plastic. Different. They taste completely different. They are completely different. Yeah. And I just don't think the people who like whatever soda they like are not going to enjoy the same. And, and vice versa. Some people might like that. Like Liz, for instance, the lizard, she enjoys, she prefers fountain like Diet Coke or whatever it may be. Yeah, I think you say that now and then you just install it and people get people just deal with the new system. All I know about Stalin is he loved recycling and reusing. <laughs> yeah. All right, we're on plastic pollution here. Plastic pollution is the accumulation of plastic objects and particles, for example, plastic bottles, bags, and microbeads in the Earth's environment that adversely affect wildlife, wildlife habitat, and humans. Plastics that act as pollutants are categorized into micro, meso, or macro debris based on size. Plastics are inexpensive and durable, and as a result... Levels of plastic production by humans are high. However, the chemical structure of most plastics renders them resistant to many natural processes of uh, degradation, and as a result, they are slow to degrade. Together, these two factors have led to a high prominence of plastic pollution. Ooh, a lot of peas in here. A lot of peas. You're popping a lot of peas, baby. Together, these two factors have led to a high prominence of plastic pollution in the environment. Yeah, the pictures here are disturbing. There's a stream in Madagascar. It's just all plastic. Like you can walk on it? Yeah, you can walk on it. Do you want to point some fingers here, Jason? I see major plastic polluter countries. Let's point fingers. We're pointing fingers. In 2018, approximate... 513 million tons of plastics wind up in the oceans every year, out of which 83% is from the following 20 countries. China is the most mismanaged plastic waste polluter, leaving in the sea the 27.7% of the world total. Second is Indonesia with 10.1%. Third, the Philippines with 5.9%. Fourth, Vietnam with 5.8%. Sri Lanka, Thailand, Egypt, Malaysia, Nigeria, Bangladesh, South Africa, India, Algeria, Turkey, Pakistan, Brazil, Myanmar, Morocco, North Korea, and we're coming in at 20th with 0.9%, the United States. Aw, we can do better, guys. Come on. All the European Union countries combined world rank 18th on the list. Wow, Europe's doing a pretty good job. Asia is killing it 
in the plastics literally department they are killing us they're killing the world they're killing us faster than we're killing ourselves this is interesting okay plastic pollution as a cause of climate change in 2019 a new report plastic and climate was published according to the report in 2019 production and incineration of plastic will contribute greenhouse gases in the equivalent of 850 million tons of carbon dioxide they should take the plastics to centralia pennsylvania stuff them down in the mine now you're thinking now i'm thinking not well but i'm thinking i mean might as well just stuff it full of trash until the fire is put out like kind of like you were saying like um take away the oxygen it sounds like plastic cannot be defeated not even by fire let's get hbo pay-per-view centralia fire versus Plastic pollution. Oh, I thought you were going to say versus, uh, what's that guy's name? Jake Paul. Yeah, so it's the, Centra- the Centralia Mind Fire versus Jake oh Paul. Oh, my God. That- hey, 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 wait. I see. Okay. Ooh, ooh. 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 <laughs> this is- got Kyle This up. is under a- f- Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, whoa. They're- God damn. We're close, Jason. We're so close. So- yeah, we're so effects close. on yeah. plastic. Yeah. Okay. Oh yeah, give me those effects. Effects of oh, come yeah. on. What is it not, affecting? What is it not affecting? Everything can give you an orgasm. <laughs> you did that during the red light episode. You can't do it every episode. We're not talking about sex. Guess what? Everything gets me off. Oh. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Especially when teacher Kyle is teaching. Should I put a shirt back on? Yeah, yeah. What's in the lesson plan? All right, so the effects of plastics on the ocean. This is a whole section. And there they have under here a subheading North Atlantic Garbage Patch, but I don't see the Pacific Garbage Patch. Give me the big one. Mm. Plastic entering the seas is increasing each year with much of the plastic entering the seas in particles smaller than 5 millimeters. As of 2016, it was estimated that there were approximately 150 million tons of plastic pollution in the world's ocean, estimated to grow to 250 by 2025. That's crazy. Another study estimated that in 2012, it was approximately 165 million. All right, well, what's 15 million tons here and there? All right, I'm going to go to the North Atlantic garbage patch. So everyone who's listening to the podcast that's a huge fan of garbage patches, we're taking the full tour. This is the North Atlantic garbage patch. Hell yeah. The North Atlantic garbage patch is a garbage patch of man-made marine debris found floating in the North Atlantic gear. Gear? Within the North Atlantic gyre. Guyer. Originally documented in 1972. I wonder when plastic was invented. The 50s, maybe? The 40s? Ooh. When was plastic bag? We would have known if we found out where the- when plastic bags I were know, invented. I know, I know, but I I said it sucked. Based on a 22-year research study conducted by the Sea Education Association, SEA, clever, The patch is estimated to be hundreds of kilometers across in size with a density of more than 200,000 pieces of debris per square kilometer. 
The source of the garbage originates from human waste traveling from the rivers into the ocean and mainly consists of microplastics. The garbage patch is a large risk to wildlife and humans though, through plastic consumption and entanglement. There have only been a few awareness and cleanup efforts for the North Atlantic garbage patch, such as the Garbage Patch State at UNESCO and the Ocean Cleanup, which are both programs. As most of the research and cleanup efforts have been done for the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, a similar garbage patch hey. in the Great Pacific. Which one's bigger? Is ours bigger? The ones that, the one that we picked is our garbage patch. Well, bigger? let's see. You you got to remember these numbers. It's all about size when it comes to garbage, baby. So the North Atlantic garbage patch, two hundred approximately 200,000 pieces of debris. It's hundreds of kilometers across Hell in yeah. size. So Dude, that's crazy. That's uh, I, like, because I didn't know there was, I thought because it was the great one, it was the only one. Well, I said, I said at I? the beginning, there's got to be smaller garbage patches because if you, if you're naming one, the great, it's like you're differentiating. Well, I mean, they have the Great Wall of China. There's other walls. What walls? You're telling me there's no retaining walls in China? There's not one other wall that was built after the Great Wall. Did you know that? Well, I have learned a lot on this podcast. All right, so we, we made it. We're on the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, also described as the Pacific Trash Vortex. I think we should rebrand this thing to not be the Great. Maybe we should call it the shithole garbage patch. Well, I kind of like the name Vortex. It makes it seem dangerous and like we should stop it. Yeah, you, know you might get sucked in. Exactly. Like a trash succubus. Oh, a succubus. Okay, Pacific Trash Vortex is a garbage patch, a gyre of marine debris particles in the central North Pacific Ocean. The collection of plastic and floating trash originates from the Pacific Rim, all those countries that are the big polluters, including countries in Asia, yep. North America, and South America. Hey, we're all we're all working together. That's that's kind of beautiful though. Yeah, it's the one thing we're really we're really working on. Asia, North America, and South America. Yeah. Let's say that makes me feel good. The gyre is divided into two areas, the eastern garbage patch between Hawaii and California and the western garbage patch. So it's actually two garbage patches. Uh, the western garbage patch extends eastward from Japan all the way to Hawaii. Jesus. Wow. So it's kind of more of a row, it seems like. I imagine you can hop there from Japan to Hawaii like if you were to do that on like Super Mario, Bro Super Italian Brothers, eventually, Super um, Italian you know, Brothers. like like little like little patches where you can just like before it sinks down. Eventually, you know how like back in the day, the cavemen came from Russia to North America by crossing like a landmass over the Bering Strait or something. Eventually, there'll be yes. a path of garbage that just connects Japan to California. Right, yeah, that'd be kind of cool. We did. We need to work on this harder. Yeah. Okay, so here's here's something that answers one of your early questions. Despite the common public perception of the patch existing as a giant island of floating garbage, its low dens density prevents detection by satellite imagery or even by casual boaters or divers in the area. 
This is because the patch is a widely dispersed area consisting primarily of suspended fingernail-sized or smaller bits of plastic, often microscopic uh, particles in the upper water column known as microplastics. Researchers from the Ocean Cleanup Project claimed that the patch covers 1.6 million square kilometers, so much bigger than the North Atlantic one. Yeah. Some of the plastic in the patch is over 50 years old and includes items such as plastic lighters, toothbrushes, water bottles, pens, baby bottles, cell phones, plastic bags, and nurdles. What is a nurdle? It's a type of Furby. I bet my Furby's over there. A nurdle, it took me to microplastics, so we'll never know what a nurdle is. But I guarantee there's Furby parts. Research indicates that the patch is rapidly accumulating. The patch is believed to have increased tenfold each decade since 1945. We're doing some work here, boys. Similar patches in the North Atlantic. So... What else do you want to know? Sources of plastic. We kind of talked about that already. Uh, constitution. So what makes up the... I thought it was um, microplastics. Yeah we, yeah, we already know that. So size estimates, effect on marine life and humans, direct harm to species. We could, we could go to that. Yeah, let's do that. Yeah, let's end on a sad note. Okay. How many seals is he going to kill? Let's briefly... Talk about the history here. When was this like first documented? The patch was described in a 1988 paper published by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA. Uh, Charles J. Moore returning home through the North Pacific gyre after competing in the Trans-Pacific Yacht Race in 1997 claimed to have come upon an enormous stretch of floating debris. Moore alerted the oceanographer Curtis, some dude, who subsequently dubbed the region the Eastern Garbage Patch, or EGP. EGP. The area is frequently featured in media reports as an exceptional example of marine pollution. Can we stop saying this is great and exceptional? This is a shitty... Yeah. It's a great shitty example of marine pollution. Right. All right. In 2019, Ocean Voyages Institute, OVI. OVI. The same organization behind the 2009, 2010, and 2012 expeditions conducted a cleanup in the gyre and removed about 84,000 pounds of polymer nets and consumer plastic trash. That's crazy because 84,000 pounds is nothing for this thing. Yeah, that's true. In May of 2020, the OVI conducted a cleanup expedition that removed 170 tons um, of consumer plastics. All right, here we go. Effect on marine life and humans. The United Nations Ocean Conference estimated that the oceans might contain more weight in plastics than fish by the year 2050. Wow. That can't be no, good. No, that can't be good. What kind of fish? All fish. All kinds of fish? There's more <laughs> plastic in weight in the ocean in 2050 than the amount of fish. <laughs> than the things that live yeah, there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. That is terrifying. Imagine imagine if there was more plastic than in weight than there is humans in weight. Or is, or, or is that a thing already? 
And I think it was just reported recently that there is more trash in weight than living matter in the world. So like plants, humans, fish, whatever, there's more trash in weight than living stuff. So it's we're pretty disgusting, you know? We're up there. Damn. Dude, that's rough, man. That's scary. Yeah, it is scary because we got to figure out what to do with all this trash. Turns out lighting it on fire doesn't work. I guess not. Some long-lasting plastics end up in the stomachs of marine animals. Plastic attracts seabirds and fish. When marine life consumes plastic, allowing it to enter the food chain, this can lead to greater problems when species that have consumed plastic are then eaten by other predators. Animals can also become trapped in plastic, nets, and rings, which can cause death. Plastic pollution affects at least 700 marine species, including sea turtles, seals, and sea lions, seabirds, fish, and whales, and dolphins. Cetaceans? What are cetaceans? I know about crustaceans. Citations? No, cetaceans. Oh, those are sedimentary uh, cretaceans. Cetaceans are aquatic mammals consisting, uh, so it's like dolphins, whales, things like that. Cetaceans have been sighted within the patch, which possess entanglement and ingestion risks to animals using the Great Pacific Garbage Patch as a migration corridor or core habitat. That would be a good navigation thing. Like, oh yeah, just... Take the great garbage patch until day. Yeah. Um, well, hey, man, that's the great Pacific garbage patch. We did it. We went from a disaster in Pennsylvania to a great disaster in the Pacific Ocean. Two disasters, both involving trash. Yeah, that was a big, long garbage talk. We walked across the garbage of Wikipedia. Yeah, we really did. All right, Manuel, uh, do you got any plugs you want to do? You got a uh, First off, fuck? I'm not Manuel. First off, I'm not Manuel. Whoa, whoa. I've been calling you Manuel this entire time. <laughs> this whole time you've been calling me Manuel. People can follow you at Manuel Nunez <laughs> on Instagram. Hell yeah. People can follow me on Instagram at Laftinas or on Twitter at Jason Nunez. And everyone can check out my other podcast, The Rumors Book Club. That's also on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Where are you listening to this? Check out The Rumors Book Club. You can also follow me on Instagram at Kyle Berseth and follow WikiU on Instagram at WikiUniversity. Finally, music for the episode was provided by Davey and the Chains. And that's it. That's the show. Bye. All right, bro. Milky. And beans.